a note. Today's episode includes discussions of homicide, domestic abuse, and incest. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Today's case is still open. If you have information that could help, resources can be found at the end of this episode. You could say that the city of Fort Worth, Texas is divided into two eras, before three young girls went missing from their mall and after. Rusty Arnold has memories of both. A lifelong resident of Fort Worth, he was 11 when the girls disappeared. He'll be turning 60 soon. And he still hears locals talking about what happened as if it's some kind of urban legend. Like this one time when Rusty went to pick up a check from work, he took his young daughter with him and an old clerk took one look at his daughter and warned her to be careful. He pointed out that she looked just like those three girls, the ones who vanished and never came back. What the clerk didn't know is, for Rusty, the mysterious disappearance was much more than lore. The case had consumed his life, slowly tearing his family apart. So he looked back at the clerk and let him know. That was my sister. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I want you to meet three young girls who disappeared during a trip to the mall two days before Christmas in 1974. Their names are Rachel Trelisa, Renee Wilson, and Julie Ann Mosley. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Rusty Arnold's eyes are expressive, youthful even, like an excited boy searching the night sky for signs of Santa. He's in his late 50s, heavyset with a cropped blonde beard, smile lines, and pale skin with a pink undertone. I've only seen him in videos and interviews, but it's easy to imagine him at 11, 
the age he was when his sister went missing. When someone disappears, we often remember them exactly as they were at the time. So for Rusty, he remembers his sister as a role model and a loving friend. It's 1974. Unlike stereotypical high school juniors, Rachel Trelisa's really sweet to her little brother. When McDonald's runs a promotion offering special edition drinking glasses, she drives Rusty to everyone in town so he can collect them all. She's also acted as his guitar teacher, a fact that he will one day immortalize in a song he'll write called In Memory of You. I unfortunately can't play you the song, but here are a few lyrics. You weren't just my sister, you were my best friend. You taught me my first guitar chords with your guiding hand. By Rusty's account, Rachel is a golden child with looks to match. In photos, she's got long lashes, a small button nose, and a hint of a smile. Though she's 17, she's married to a 22-year-old man named Tommy Trelisa. That's why Rusty and Rachel don't have the same last name. Tommy is something of a serial monogamist. Before marrying Rachel, he was actually engaged to Rachel's older sister, Deborah. Before that, he was married to another woman and had a kid. Which means, despite being a junior in high school, Rachel's a stepmom to a two-year-old, and Rusty's only about eight years older than his nephew. As Rusty remembers it, on December 23rd, 1974, Rachel wants to get a present for her stepson. She asks her sister Deborah to go to the Seminary South Shopping Center, but Deborah says she's too tired. According to Rusty, Deborah has more of the personality you'd expect from a teenager. She's rebellious with a bit of an attitude, basically the polar opposite of Rachel. Rachel moves on to ask her good friend to go with her, 14-year-old Renee Wilson. The girls are two grades apart, but their families have always been close. They all like to go camping together in Rocky Creek, a park outside the city that sits on this beautiful, expansive lake. Like Rachel, Renee's in a serious relationship despite being 14. In fact, earlier that day, Renee's boyfriend Terry gave her a promise ring, so obviously they're pretty serious. When Terry's kid sister, Julianne, overhears Rachel and Renee's shopping plans, she begs her mom to go. Her mother's resistant. Julianne's only nine, but she trusts Renee, so she caves. With holiday cheer in the air, the three girls tell their parents they'll be back by 4 p.m. They hop in Rachel's Oldsmobile and head to the mall. The Seminary South Shopping Center was one of the first malls to open in Fort Worth. It's a huge open air shopping complex. Shoppers in the 70s would see huge white lights and nativity scenes decorate the stores for Christmas. With only 48 hours till the big day, I imagine it's packed with shoppers picking up last minute gifts. The three girls park outside Sears and head inside. Witnesses there see them shopping and apparently they're so filled with life, they're hard to miss. It seems like they must be really excited about the holiday and school vacation. Rachel picks up her present and at some point puts it in the backseat of her car. And then, well, we don't know. Back at their houses, 4 p.m. comes and goes without any sign of the girls. By six, Rachel and Renee's parents head to the mall to look for them. They don't know what if anything is wrong, but they're prepared for anything. 
Rachel's dad even packs a shotgun just in case. They find Rachel's Oldsmobile parked in the lot outside of Sears. The doors are locked. There's no evidence of a struggle, no broken windows, and nothing is out of place. But more importantly, the girls are missing. The families call the police. While they wait for officials to arrive, Rusty and his mom walk around to the stores, asking if anyone's seen Rachel. But as they do, it gets so late that all the shops begin to close and lock up. It's been hours since they called the police, and they still haven't arrived. For 11-year-old Rusty, the delay is agonizing. He and his mom start to lose hope. And then around 11 p.m., law enforcement finally shows up. Almost immediately, police assume the girls ran away. The families protest. To them, that makes no sense. If they ran away, why would Rachel leave the car? Why wouldn't Renee tell her boyfriend? Why would Julianne, a nine-year-old child, abandon her family? And let's be honest, her presence two days before Christmas. They're so presumptuous about everything, they don't even dust the car for prints. They're not there long. They're basically in and out. The girls' parents head home and wait by the phone for hours, hoping the girls will get in touch. But then, in the morning on Christmas Eve, a letter arrives. It's addressed to Tommy, from his wife, Rachel. It reads, I know I'm going to catch it, but we just had to get away. We're going to Houston. See you in about a week. The car's in the Sears upper lot. Love, Rachel. By catch it, she's saying she knows she's gonna get in trouble. But the letter seems to be good news. The girls are apparently safe. Maybe the police were half right. The girls temporarily ran away and they'll be back a few days after Christmas. There's no denying the timing is odd. Why not wait until after the holidays? Nobody knows because Rachel doesn't mention what they're doing in Houston, but it's not just the timing of this trip that's unusual. It's the timing of the letter. How did it arrive so quickly? This is the 70s. There's no way the US Postal Service could have pulled off a less than 24 hour turnaround. Moreover, the letter doesn't really feel like Rachel. She always calls her husband Tommy, but the letter addresses him as Thomas. And the L in Rachel's signature kind of looks like an E, as if someone spelled it wrong, then corrected it. Not to mention the handwriting's off. It looks like it was written by someone who's right-handed, but Rachel's a lefty. Tommy and Rachel's family are immediately suspicious, but the Fort Worth police operate under the assumption that Rachel penned the letter. One detective tells a local paper, quote, I don't know if she was forced to write it, which you might think means police go on to investigate possible foul play, like the girls' families want them to, but they seem to mostly just use the note as evidence to support their initial theory that the girls ran away. Christmas Day is hard for the families. It's difficult for them to feel like there's anything to celebrate. Renee's mom puts her daughter's presents in the attic so she can open them when she returns. Rusty feels the emptiness around the Christmas tree, but it's not an entirely unfamiliar feeling. He has memories of his sister Deborah running away a lot. As he says, he was, quote, used to his sister disappearing. A heartbreaking reality for an 11-year-old. In the immediate aftermath, investigators reportedly look into a few leads, but apparently nothing comes of it. 
When the new year arrives, an investigator tells the local paper, quote, it obviously looks worse. Seven days have come and gone, and the police are confronted with the fact that they're probably wrong. The girls weren't runaways. They joke that their investigation has come full circle. From nowhere to nowhere. As more time passes, hope for the girls' safe return dwindles. The families trudge through creek beds and country roads searching for evidence. Bodies. A sign. Then, a little over a month after the girls disappeared, one arrives. It's 11 a.m. The sun is shining through the kitchen windows, but it's freezing out. The phone rings, and Rayanne Mosley, Julianne's mom, picks up. She says hello, but no one responds. There's just deafening silence on the other end of the line. She says hello again, and still nothing. She's about to hang up when she hears what sounds like a low moan before a little girl's voice says the word, Mama. Every unsolved crime leaves us with a nagging sense that just one witness, one piece of evidence, one additional lead could change everything. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from Parcast, Cold Cases, Every Monday, revisit some of the most puzzling crimes in history, a vast array of offenses that ran cold for decades. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases pieces together the details of an elusive case. Some eventually had breakthroughs that closed the file, others remain open to this day. Solved or unsolved, you won't know which until the very end. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. On the morning of February 7th, Rayanne, Julianne Mosley's mom, gets a call. And here's what she thinks is a little girl's voice say, Mama. She asks who it is, and the voice cries, Mama, a second time. Rayanne thinks it's Julianne, but ever since the news of her daughter's disappearance broke, she and her husband have been getting prank calls, false leads, teens pretending to be the girl's friends, that sort of thing. So Rayanne says, listen, if this is someone playing a joke, please stop, I can't take it anymore. She asks one more time if the caller is Julianne, and the voice responds, yes. Rayanne is now at the edge of her seat. She asks her daughter where she is. She knows it's her, but Julianne says she doesn't know where she is. She squeaks out one more mama, and the call ends. Rayanne's left screaming her daughter's name into a dial tone. The moment is crushing. Rayanne walks away thinking her daughter sounded sick or drugged, but certain it was Julianne. Around this time, Rachel and Renee's family receive similar calls. 
suggesting that after all this time, the girls could still be alive. But police tracked down the source of the calls and learn most were made by the same person. A 14-year-old girl living in a nearby suburb confesses to placing all but one, the call to Rayanne on February 7th. For all anyone knows, that could have been real. Unfortunately, the pranks don't stop. They continue to waste valuable time and resources. They end up getting so bad that Renee's family installs a new separate phone line to avoid the fake calls. I will never understand this kind of cruelty. What drives anyone to see a phone number on the poster of a missing child and think, why not torture a grieving family some more? Although this is an older case and prank calls may seem like some ancient concept today, this type of torment has really only transformed in the digital age to things like anonymous emails, comments, and messages on social media. This is still a reality for so many loved ones of the missing. People prey upon them because they have hope that their loved one, their child, may return someday. But that hope can be fragile. Acts like this can chip away at it until the family just can't bear to think about it at all anymore. One prank phone call, one comment, one email that you may never think about again could keep a parent up at night for the next decade. I know I get really serious on this show and in my work in general. The thing is, I'm all for good, innocent fun. But torturing families of the missing is not that. Six months after Rachel's disappearance, Rusty's still just a kid trying to make sense of everything. His sister's absence, the pranks. Then tragedy strikes again. His father, Cotton, passes away from cancer. Rusty's mom, Fran, takes a part-time job at McDonald's to support the family. In less than a year, Rusty's family shrinks from five to three, and they're no closer to finding out what happened to Rachel. As far as the three girls' families are concerned, the Fort Worth police aren't working the case the way they should be. Renee's mother is begging for action, but it seems like the officials aren't taking the investigation seriously. So before long, Renee's father, Richard, starts to doubt pretty much anything the police say. At some point, the cops tell Richard that the girls' bodies may have been found. They'd received a tip that they might be at the bottom of a well in Alito, a town about 30 minutes from the mall. According to Richard, the officers say they'll check it out, but he doesn't necessarily believe that they actually will. So he follows them. Allegedly, rather than go to Alito and check on the lead, Richard watches the officers drive to a diner in town called the Paris Coffee Shop. He parks across the street and waits for them to leave. Richard says that when they finish, the cops get back in their car and drive back to the station. Shortly after, they call his house and let him and his wife know. They checked on the well. Nothing came of it. It's possible other officers checked out the lead, but Richard walks away believing the cops were lying. As a result of a growing distrust, the families start taking action. They hire a private investigator named John Swaim, who's like a breath of fresh air. John really seems to care. He's proactive and determined, at times rallying hundreds of volunteers to follow up on tips. Some sources say he chases down more leads than the entire Fort Worth Police Department. And based on the sheer volume of reported sightings, John's hopeful the girls may still be alive. So when he gets a call from an anonymous source claiming to know the trio's whereabouts, he's willing to jump through hoops. A lot of them. 
I'll spare you the details, but the caller sounds like a man and he sends John to 17 different payphones before he says he's willing to talk. And not long after they do speak, the tipster ghosts John, which means it could have been a prank all along. But there's one detail that stands out. During a conversation, the caller says he wants to surrender directly to the district attorney without law enforcement getting involved. It's a strangely specific request. If someone's surrendering to authorities, they believe they've committed a crime. But why would that person care if the police showed up? Cops or not, their sentence wouldn't change. Unless, of course, the caller knew that the cops were complicit in the disappearance and was afraid that officials might try and silence the truth before it got out. Four years later, in 1979, these suspicions only get worse. John Swaim is found dead in his Fort Worth apartment from a drug overdose. His death is later ruled suicide. But strangely enough, the PI's funerary instructions ask for his case files to be burned. This includes all the information he's gathered on the missing trio case. Everything he's learned in the past few years goes up in flames. According to John's wife, her husband's files contain dirt on members of the Fort Worth PD, information he didn't necessarily want to come to light. But some are skeptical of that explanation. Why destroy his life's work? Wouldn't he want the families to be able to pick up where he left off? The unusual nature of it all convinces a young Rusty Arnold there may be a conspiracy in his sister's case. The years drag on without answers. The families continue trying everything they can. They chase psychic visions to alleged burial sites, dig up pig skulls. They experience one dead end after another until finally the leads dry up. The case goes cold. But that doesn't stop Rusty from throwing himself at it as soon as he's old enough to do so. For a while, he works with his older sister, Deborah, but eventually he becomes a one-man team conducting his own research, meeting with private investigators, organizing search parties. He uses songwriting as a creative outlet, writing lyrics like, I don't know what happened on that cold December night, so many questions left unanswered. Did you try to fight? You were with your two good friends. Why did they have to go too? Rachel, Renee, and Julianne. Where on earth are you? At some point, it's hard to know when, the case turns into an obsession. It takes precedence over everything else in Rusty's life. It eats up all his time and he becomes almost relentless in his pursuit of justice. He frequently trespasses on private property while chasing leads. He runs through backyards all across the state. If someone questions him, he is claimed he pretends to be a prospective buyer, interested in purchasing the land, home, or whatever it is. A reporter joins Rusty on one of his searches. When the guy gets nervous about Rusty's behavior, Rusty tells him not to worry. Believe me, he says, I've done this a hundred times. One time, Rusty learns that a convicted kidnapper, rapist, and suspected serial killer lived just minutes away from his childhood home in 1974. So he goes to the house and digs through the attic for clues. Whether he broke in, I'm not sure, but Rusty's clearly willing to break the law for his sister's case. He causes enough trouble that the Fort Worth police threaten to arrest him for interfering with their investigation. Whether that matters to Rusty or not, I'm not sure. 
He describes his investigation almost like a game of whack-a-mole. Every time a new lead pops up, he needs to attack it, no matter how far-fetched. As he told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, if we don't rule it out, then I'll be thinking about it. And my mother will be thinking about it the rest of her life. But by 1999, indiscriminately following leads puts Rusty on a path that leads him back home, pointing a finger at the only sister he has left. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Sometime in the mid-90s, Rusty Arnold gets in touch with a private investigator named Dan James. In 1974, Dan lived near the Seminary South Shopping Center. Naturally, he heard about the missing girls, and the case piqued his interest. Conducting research in his free time turned into knocking on doors, speaking to witnesses and persons of interest. This included Rachel and Tommy's neighbors. According to Dan, some neighbors heard arguments break out in the weeks leading up to the girls' disappearance. What the fight was about, I don't know. Now, before I go any further, I want to underscore two points. First, Dan's a little more than an amateur detective. He worked as the chief investigator for the Federal Public Defender Offices of the Northern District of Texas for 12 years. And second, most of Dan's information hasn't been corroborated by any other source I could find, which personally makes it difficult to trust no matter his experience. It's possible he knocked on doors and gathered information the police didn't. Officials did mostly assume the girls were runaways, but we're still relying on one man's word that's heavy on speculation. Dan points to one detail that I can corroborate though. Remember that letter Tommy found in his mailbox on Christmas Eve? To this day, it remains the only piece of physical evidence in the case. The FBI still hasn't been able to determine whether the handwriting belongs to Rachel. In addition to all the strange details I mentioned earlier, there was a return zip code stamped onto the corner. The first four numbers were 7608. The final number was hard to make out. To those who saw it, it could have been a faded eight, but it also looked like a number three. The zip code didn't mean much at the time, but as the Fort Worth Weekly found in a 2020 article, after Rachel went missing, Tommy moved out of Fort Worth. He bought a house with Rachel's name still on the deed in a tiny town called Throckmorton, a town whose zip code at the time just so happened to be 76083. Tommy vehemently denies he had anything to do with the girl's disappearance. He says he's cooperated with law enforcement in every way possible. Though Dan has said he doesn't find these connections to be solid proof of anything, his claims play such a big role in this story because over the years, Rusty leans on them. At a certain point, he suspects Rachel may not have even written the letter. This eventually places a strain on Rusty and Deborah's relationship. Keep in mind, Deborah is also Rachel's sister. She was supposed to be at the mall that day, but was too tired. She carries her own baggage, her own grief. 
She similarly denies any involvement in the girl's disappearance. And yet, according to Deborah, when she nearly dies of a drug overdose, Rusty doesn't visit her in the hospital to see if she's okay. He goes to interrogate her one last time in case she dies. It breaks Fran's heart. I mean, imagine, your daughter goes missing, your husband dies, then your only son accuses your only surviving daughter of conspiracy to murder. No matter what the truth of the situation is, it just hurts. It's no wonder she sometimes refers to Dan James as the devil. According to the Fort Worth Weekly, in 1999, at her wit's end, Deborah types a three-page letter begging Rusty to stop with the accusation. She wrote, quote, "'You have an uncontrollable need for things to be the way you need them to be, not the way they were. For example, she says, "'Rachel didn't teach you to play the guitar. I did. She didn't even know how.'" Eventually, Dan becomes wary of Rusty's penchant to overgeneralize and the lengths he'll go to to put a question to rest. He said he no longer passed along the information he finds, not after what Rusty did when Dan posed a theory about Rusty's father. See, while the coverage of this case tends to paint the three families as classic, peaceful households, the truth may be more complicated and disturbing. Rusty and Deborah's father, Cotton Arnold, physically abused his two daughters. Rusty remembers seeing him whip Deborah so hard that blood ran down her legs. He also says Cotton once pointed a gun at his mother and threatened to kill her in front of all the kids. Cotton owned a transmission shop in town with the slogan, if your car's rotten, bring it to Cotton. According to Dan James, he interviewed people around the shop and learned that Cotton may have been more than just violent. So at some point, Dan develops a new theory. He tells the Fort Worth Weekly that he doesn't know if Cotton was actively involved in the disappearance, but quote, he had motivation for Rachel to be missing. I think Rachel was pregnant with Mr. Arnold's child when she went missing. While Deborah and Fran try to move forward with their lives without giving air to the disturbing allegations, Rusty digs deeper. In his song, he writes, I was just a little boy. I cannot forget my blood. When others seem to have forgot, I will drag this through the mud. And on September 24th, 2016, he literally does just that. Rusty and a forensic anthropologist show up to the Colonial Garden Cemetery and mausoleum to exhume cotton. His mom, Fran, has reluctantly given consent and Rusty's paid the cemetery roughly $3,000 to do it. All he needs is a single bone. He's hoping Cotton's DNA will maybe match DNA found on the letter, or if he ever finds a murder weapon. But realistically, he's just grasping at straws. They bring a femur to a lab. Rusty watches the dust fly from his father's bone as they saw into it. But too much time has passed. The sample's too degraded to extract any DNA. They have to let it go. I know Rusty's obsession with his sister's case seems extreme. I may not agree with all of his decisions or how he chooses to conduct himself, but I do admire his dedication and he's clearly inspired others. In 2019, after five years of trying, Rusty organizes a team of divers to explore Benbrook Lake based on an old lead. Someone reportedly abandoned a car in the lake around the time Rachel went missing. The divers are complete strangers helping Rusty because he asked. 
and that's amazing. After everything, Rusty has faith in people. He says, if you look for the helpers, you'll always find people willing to lend a hand, even if it's for a 50-year-old missing persons case. Now, the dive is challenging. The lake's filled with black water, so there's zero visibility. One diver compares it to lying in a coffin with your eyes closed. You can't see how much air you have left, and you can't see the car. If you miss it by just a foot, you miss it by a mile. After a while, the lead diver calls it off because the conditions are too dangerous. Rusty's understandably heartbroken. He's spent at least five years putting this together, but he doesn't push. He doesn't want the divers getting hurt, even if it means never finding out what's in the car. He later tells a reporter, quote, I just can't thank them enough. They're not just the dive team to me. They're my family. They're family that came to me. Christmas is still hard for the families of the missing girls. Every year, Fran puts three glowing angels on her lawn in their honor. The light of their wings and trumpets shine in the dark, calling Rachel, Renee, and Julianne home. If they're alive, Rachel would be 65 years old today, Renee 62, and Julie 55. But inside the house, Fran's living room looks frozen in time. Decorated like it was in December 1974, pictures of Rachel are scattered about. Newspaper clippings about the girl's disappearance sit in a thick binder next to the couch with headlines like crimes of the last century. But as of 2020, Rusty says he and Deborah have repaired their relationship. While the families are still looking for answers, it seems Rusty has at least made room for acceptance. At the end of his song, In Memory of You, the drums drop out. Over an acoustic guitar, Rusty talks into the mic with a warm, heartfelt drawl. He speaks directly to Rachel, saying, someday, somewhere, maybe we'll meet again. I love you and I miss you. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. Out of the many sources we used for this episode, we found the article Portrait of a True Crime Character by Johnny Opping extremely helpful to our research. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Rachel Trelisa, Renee Wilson, or Julianne Mosley, please contact the Fort Worth Police at 817-877-8345. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Brawl-Row. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as the head of production, and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Ben Caro, 
edited by Amber Von Schassen and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. Every Monday, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Solved or unsolved, you won't know which until the very end. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify.